The Koffler Gallery is proud to present the world premiere of a heart-wrenching and fascinating exhibition, The Synagogue at Babinyar, Turning the Nightmares of Evil into a Shared Dream of Good. Opening on the eve of Yom HaShoah, April 17th, and running until November, the multidisciplinary exhibition tells the bittersweet story of the Babinyar Synagogue, which stands on the grounds of the first large-scale massacre of the Holocaust in 1941. Experience the full historical, political, artistic, and spiritual context of this incredible monument for the first time. The exhibition is free of charge. To learn more, visit KofflerArts.org. This is Bonjour Chai, the secular, I hardly even know her edition. I'm Avi Fongold in Montreal, and I'm here with Phoebe Maltzbovi in Toronto. We are your frozen chosen. On today's show, we talk about the religious-secular divide in contemporary Judaism with our special guest host, Mark Oppenheimer. And once we have him on, we'll discuss Judy Bloom, who is currently having a moment and is someone he knows more than just a little bit about. For all of you listeners out there who get this early, uh, remember that I will be doing a Bonjour Chai live this Sunday, May 7th, at the Sharshmime Congregation in Montreal. Phoebe's not going to be there. She wasn't able to make it. But uh, we've had so many so many people asking us about the episode that we did with Samuel Heilman about the Chabadification of Judaism. We will be having uh, at least one and hopefully, I think likely at this point, two Chabad Shluchim. We will talk about this from their perspective. Um, what does it mean to be a Chabad Shaliach? What does it look like uh, to be doing? outreach in this way. Come check it out uh, this Sunday, May 7th at the Shar Shemayim, part of their day of learning and uh, tickets can be found on their website. Phoebe, how's it going? It's going well. How about you, Avi? What's new? Good. You know, I've been busy. I was in uh, I was in the U.S. of A. over the weekend. I uh, had my niece's bat mitzvah. I was in your the home state of uh, Connecticut, in Stanford, Connecticut, over the weekend. My niece's bat mitzvah was wonderful. Everybody was beautiful. It was a nice mazel, mazel tov. What about you? Nice. What's been happening? Um, so I had a very special um, Canadian Jewish experience that was unexpected, which was that um, a couple of men came to repair our broiler, which has not worked um, since we moved into this house in um, June 2020. What kind of a Jewish home? do you have without a broiler uh you know uh, (laughs) not a whole a lot of slightly soggy uh cooked food but not anymore um but yeah so these men were chatting about the broiler very in a very animated way but i was in a different room and i couldn't really hear and then i suddenly realized they're speaking hebrew i was like whoa that's that's kind of cool so i go in um and I tell them that I speak some hebrew you know you know and they take this as excellent she speaks hebrew and they start telling me all about the broiler and really really fast hebrew and i'm like whoa <laughs> like i probably in english would be having a little trouble with this but but it was fun um and it was a really unexpected little um israeli culture here in Canada. So we have with us uh, Mark Oppenheimer, who will introduce why he's on here in a minute. He is an author. He is a former host of uh, Tablets Unorthodox, the, uh, what do you say, the universe's largest podcast or something like that, whatever? Uh, I believe the line uh, I wrote many years ago was the universe's leading Jewish podcast. You're an author. You're a uh, journalist. You are working on a biography, which we'll talk about uh, eventually. And you're a past uh, guest of Bonjour Chai. So welcome back. It's an honor to be back. Thank you for having me. So you, the reason why we brought you on there was a little literary spat that uh, erupted between you and Phoebe, I guess you could say. The throwing of the virtual mud. Um, Give us a summary. What riled you up? How, how can I, the rabbi of the day, maybe of service to mediate and adjudicate? Well, I think as a rabbi, you may be a, a somewhat not entirely unbiased observer in all of this. Um, so I should preface this by saying that Mark was my editor for a piece once at Tablet, and he's fantastic. And um, oh, I you. come at all of this in a sort of 
with love mark oppenheimer thank you um standpoint however we did have a spat because uh <laughs> i dis a disagreement not a spat um he wrote a piece for his Oppenheimer uh, newsletter. His newsletter is called Oppenheimer, and it's called Gross Egonistes, uh, my open letter to a New York Times columnist about her Judaism, wherein he um, took... Um, Jessica. Jessica Gross. Jessica Gross, yes. To task for basically... Um, for In her writing, she talks about kind of wishing that she was more deeply connected to her Jewishness or Judaism. That could be also a... a topic for discussion which is it mm-hmm. um and you in this open letter basically say that she's kind of rejecting what she calls organized religion for all the wrong reasons and that she should give it a chance maybe she'd become religious maybe she wouldn't um, but that she would become at least more knowledgeable as a journalist like she could present a more um sort of complex picture of uh, what Judaism today really is and that it's vibrant and it's not the thing she remembers from her terrible Hebrew school days. Um, and yeah, I, I took some issue with this. I thought that you some took of umbrage. What, I took umbrage, Full umbrage. under the giant uh, umbrella of umbrage right, right now umbrage. Um, up here in rainy Toronto. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I I thought about this in terms of what it means for, um, I, I take as a baseline that anybody religious assumes that people who are secular are doing it wrong. Anybody secular assumes that people who are religious are doing it wrong. Baseline, people generally are leading the lives they think are correct. But yeah, I just wasn't sure whether that's really a thing you can do, whether you can go and tell an individual um, that they have their own kind of religiosity wrong. And more specifically, I was interested in, and this is something I want to kind of unpack a little bit more about, like, what is, does it matter that Jessica Gross is married to a non-Jewish man? I myself am married to a non-Jewish man, so maybe that's some of where I'm interested in this topic. Um, if I were to become an extremely observant Jew, that might be a little bit awkward. But I'm not planning on yeah. it, so we're fine. <laughs> all right. <laughs> that's that's so, it. So, all right. Do I get to respond to that now? No, no, that's it. Just, just, oh, you just okay. have to hear it. Yeah, so, go ahead. First of all, I invite people to read Jessica's. Jessica's a very fine writer. She covers mostly parenting, but other things for the New York Times. Um, and I invite people to read your response in CJN. And, um, you know, I'm actually, I've drafted a response to your response. But, and I think, you know, it's it's interesting fodder. Here, here's what I would say. A few points. I don't have one master point, but I want to push back in a few ways. Number one, I really was, and I think I, I think I didn't present this particularly well, and you were right to call me out on this. I really was recommending to Jessica Gross that she do better work or more work as a journalist. Um, she writes in this interesting space as an opinion writer, and now she has a newsletter, and we all blur these lines a lot. And so obviously, one could read her as saying, here's my own personal journey with my family, which is we do some home-based stuff. I do apples and honey for Rosh Hashanah or whatever, but I really... I, I, I Wish they had more religious education, my kids, but I don't like organized religion. And I'm on this personal journey. And even then, I would push back a little and say, when she writes in the New York Times, here's my personal journey, it's pretty legit to then come and say, well, here's why don't you try this as a personal journey? I mean, responses presumably are welcome. But here's the thing. I really, and I've been reading her for years. Um, She was at Slate for a very long time. My real quarrel is with her as a journalist because she's a very good journalist. And yet... She does a thing that a lot of secular uh, writers do. And I'm a pretty secular guy, actually. I'm not writing myself out of that community. Um, but a lot of secular writers do this thing where they, they, flick, they flick away 
quote, organized religion as this monolith without presumably ever having really looked at it. And I mean, Ezra Klein is the great example of this, right? Who has nothing but, who loves Buddhism and yoga and meditation and all sorts of spiritualities, but like clearly has no use for organized Judaism of the kind he knew when he was 12 and studying for, for his bar mitzvah. And my only point about that is I would never be allowed to write about surfing that way. Like I got on a surfboard when I was 11 and I think I might love it again, but of course organized surfing is hostile and mean and cruel and banal. And so I'm not gonna, I'm not even gonna try it. Like, I would never be allowed to write about Catholicism that way as a non-Catholic. But it's a thing Jews do with Judaism where they, they feel like, I get it. I know what's there. And um, I'm not going to do it. And I guess I just was saying, I wish editors pushed people to do better um, because it seems to me that it bears out reporting. Um, so that's that's number one. Number two, um, it's interesting. I actually initially took at face value your point that if one person in a relationship goes, you, you said extremely observant, I think that's stacking the deck a little bit. Uh, let's say mildly observant, right? If let's say a Jessica Gross character were to join a synagogue and go once a month, um, I took at face value your point that that would cause real friction in an intermarriage. This is a really deep and interesting thing. I actually think all marriages are intermarriages. Um, my wife's Jewish and I'm Jewish, but we're inevitably different kinds of Jews. And there's always friction over what the religious character of a household looks like. But, you know, I was talking about this to a friend of mine who is Jewish, married to a Jew, who has gotten more religious, and his spouse hasn't. And he said, that's absurd. Like, that's what spouses do, is they support each other on each other's life journeys, and they give each other space to change and to grow and to be who they are. And, like, wouldn't one presumes that we want our spouses to find whatever spiritual path is correct for them? And, like, Mm -hmm. so I guess I would even push back and say... Why why couldn't that be an interesting and possible part okay, of the Okay, one quick point about the intermarriage angle and what's different, I think. I agree with you. I mean, I have two Jewish parents with different, you know, journeys of their own. Um, right. Each of them, if they want to share it publicly, can do so on their own podcasting time. But um, so, <laughs> I mean, I, I'm aware of the phenomenon you're talking about. But I think what's different with an intermarriage where one partner isn't Jewish at all is that they effectively don't have the option of coming along for the ride, it would be a very, very big deal if they want it. You know what I mean? Like converting to Judaism is not trivial. One might say particularly for men, but it is not a trivial thing, right? So that's, I think, a little different. So I'm not sure I would say that these are quite... I I don't mean to be overly contrary, but like every reformed temple in the United States would welcome them and probably never ask, are you Jewish? Like it's That's just you're not true. describing you're not describing the Jewish community well, it depends that I report what on. Sort, it depends what sort of Jewish somebody wanted to. But the the other yes, thing I just wanted to ask is, and this is mae where Avi will have. Um, that's where Avi and I will be the slinging of virtual mud. But is secular or cultural Jewishness not itself a real thing? So I think that might be a bit where there's a little bit of a divide, which is like, is it sort of. Judaism light, L-I-T-E style? Is it some sort of like m- like mishmash, weak, weak version of the real Judaism? Or are cultural Jews an actual thing? And that's just what she is. You know what I mean? And it, it takes elements from the Jewish religion, but it's its own thing. And I'm thinking about this, especially because I just read for CJN work, believe it or not, Michael Steinhardt's um, book uh jewish pride about where he's talking about sort of secular jewishness and i have issues 
here and there with that book. But mm-hmm. I did think he's right that there is such a thing as um, secular cultural Jewishness. Yeah, of course, uh, there is. I mean, I have an opinion about about secular Judaism, and it's not a negative one. It's not a hostile one. And it's a. Uh, but I I could talk about where I think the theorists, the people who think that they're doing that, are sometimes aren't being very clear about what they're doing. But let me first say, just and maybe we leave Jessica Gross behind after this. Jessica Gross wrote a piece saying, I hunger for more Judaism in my life, or I'm mm-hmm. conflicted about Judaism mm-hmm. in my life. And my point about her, and she's written other pieces like mm-hmm. this. My mm-hmm. point is, she doesn't seem to be someone who is comfortable and secure and certain about the amount of the amount and kind of Judaism in her life. And, and I will just conclude by saying, I couldn't disagree more when you say that people are know the path that they should be on. I don't think I know the path I should be on. I'm utterly certain there's some other path that will be would be more fulfilling for me and I'll probably never find it. And the idea that like to to suggest to people or to suggest about a public figure even based on their own writing, maybe they should try this or maybe they're in denial or they're mistaken or they're deceiving themselves, you know, which is what a lot of great journalism or great profiles say about people, to, that that's somehow a kind of like you know, mansplaining or womansplaining or Jewsplaining to them that it doesn't take them seriously, I think is wrong. I think it actually takes them very seriously and says, I'm hearing in what you're saying different things than you think you're saying. Let's talk about it. And I don't mm-hmm. know why that's, I don't know why that bothers you. Well, have you heard anything from her? I'm wondering about this. Oh, I sent the piece to her. I mean, she's a big deal and gets a lot more mail than, you know, she surely wasn't going to see my Substack newsletter. I sent it to her. She sent back a very nice note. Um, I then invited her to Shabbat dinner. Uh, even, I mean, she lives a hundred miles away. She probably wasn't going to make it, but no, she's, she's lovely and, and a great interlocutor, but she didn't, I didn't impose on her for a big dialogue, nor did we have one. I see. Okay. I, I feel like I'm Judge John Hodgman and I'm about to like, you know, like I've been, this is the <laughs> longest I've gone without saying anything on this podcast in probably a year and a half. Um, but anyways, um, look, I think you're making all the, many of the points, Mark, that I would have made, uh, Myself, I, 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 I want to start by saying that in my mind, yes, there is such a thing as secular Judaism. Um, there are people that know a lot about Judaism and choose to say, no, this is not my thing. I distinctly remember, for example, one of the greatest Talmud lessons I ever heard had in graduate school at the University of Chicago was a visiting professor who, and I must have mentioned this on the show before, who was teaching us about Talmud while eating a sandwich on Passover. Right. And like, and I was getting insights from this guy that I'd never heard from years and years in yeshiva. Right. I was like, so yes, secularism does exist and you can have this informed or uninformed secularism, but all happy Jewish secularists are alike and all unhappy Jewish secularists are different in their own, you know, are unhappy in their own unique ways. And what Mark's pointing out was here is somebody who is secular, self-professed secular, saying that she is unhappy with her secularism, but unwilling to go make that leap to say, hey, the things that you don't seem to like don't always uh, line up with the way Judaism actually is in 2023. There are things that exist outside of, quote-unquote, organized Judaism that will fill, fill the holes that you seem to be asking for in your life. And why don't you try that, and why don't you realize that the thing that you say about Judaism is only a very narrow picture of what Judaism actually is. And I'm not telling you that, you know, you do this and it's going to be the best thing you can do, but you seem to be missing X. And I think that X actually does exist and this is where it is, right? And I think that there are many people that are secular that really recoil at this idea of somebody telling them, do this, or maybe you should look at that because it it, it sort of impinges on their 
um, ability to think of themselves as a secular Jew, as I'm complete because I do these things and that's all that I need to do. And if I tell you do this, it will automatically make me into a Chabad, ultra-Orthodox, whatever, and then do something. Yeah. We're not telling you keep Shabbat means, you know, when I introduce Shabbat to people, when they ask me, how do I start thinking about Shabbat? I tell them two things, right? I'm feeling I'm about to like, you know, get all Orthodox, but it's not. All I tell them is find something that to do on Shabbos and find something not to do. Right. And that is the basis of thinking about like how you want to spend 24 hours. Find something specific that you like and that you enjoy. Shabbat dinner, this or that. And I even tell them family movie night. Right. Go do that. And then find something that you don't do. And it doesn't have to be screens and it doesn't have to be technology. And it could just be something that you take a step back from. Right. And that's not orthodox. I, I that's wanna, just a thing. I want to, I agree with all that. And I want to, but I, I want to keep my journalist hat on and say like, I just read her as somebody who would be an interesting, who is interested in this subject, but refuses to commit journalism on this subject Mm -hmm. because her identity is, I don't do this thing. And if somebody keeps writing pieces about how they hate soccer, eventually you'd say, you know, it'd be a great journalistic project for you. Dive into like pro soccer for a year and see what you learn. Like that would just be a great move as a journalist. Can I have a half persuaded position on this? Sure. Which is, I, I think on a journalism level, I think I'm persuaded. And I think... She needs to, like, I think there is something where people have, for whatever reason, and maybe this is something specific to secular American Judaism, maybe it's just a thing more broadly, where somebody will, like, wince at something that they sort of cringe at from their childhood. This came up a little bit um, on this podcast when we were talking about how Jewish women who had gone to um, religious day schools are sort of baffled by their being, like, long denim skirts in fashion and will kind of, like wince at that it's something like that um but so as a journalist i could see that like she needs to delve into everything i think it's more i started to hear something more in the sort of making another person change their religious outlook ways in terms of like it being about her you know what i mean like I don't know. And I think that that's a specifically secular outlook. I think that there are people that are secular that as soon as you tell them, like, do do this, right? Or think about this, even as a journalist or as a Jew, right? It's like, no, 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 Mm -hmm. don't tell me what to do. I'm secular. I'm not interested in religion. But there are people who genuinely, like, I I guess the question is, what what does she want? And it could be, and I think any number of paths could be it, right? Like, it could be that maybe she wants to become a huge Zionist. Maybe she wants to study Yiddish. You know what I mean? Like, there are all sorts of things that could be getting more involved Jewishly that are not to do with a synagogue at all. Uh, And I didn't say, I mean, if you look at what I wrote, I said, you know, and it was clearly, I think, a journalistic assignment. It was like, Mm -hmm. go talk to educators, synagogue people, lay people, people Mm -hmm. who hold outdoor potlucks. It wasn't like, go join a synagogue, go to service. But let let me just say, I believe there are secular Jews. Now, what that means, what secular Judaism is, I think is a really tough question. But to your question of are there people who sort of in their soul are deeply Jewish, but not interested in religiosity? Absolutely. I know some and I'm related to some of them. Um, Those people don't continually write about Judaism. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, they just don't. They just they, uh, hi, they just, hi. I do. Well, not Judaism, the religion. I guess that's the thing. Like I write about a lot of Jewish topics, but, but it's different from. Well, I'm not saying I, that I don't say that I crave spirituality. Exactly. What you I, well, don't wait, write wait, about wait, is yeah. how angry and how bad the Judaism is, and all of this. And I'm secular, and these religious people are all wrong. Yeah. You don't write that. You write about the parts that you're happy about. You're a happy secular Jew, and that's why I'm not interested in telling you I have to do Shabbat. And let me say, I would push it a bit further and say, if there's somebody, and maybe it's it's Dr. Phoebe Maltzbovi who is like really committed to secular Judaism as the subject of her journalism, or at least for one period of her professional life, 
it would be pretty weird if she literally had no interest in, you know, be so much of Jewish culture is like, you know, so you have Allen Ginsberg, but he's writing poems called Kaddish, right? Like okay, to say, I have no ways, interest in that but stuff. But does it cut both ways? Do you expect <laughs> that observant Jews are knowledgeable about, you know, Woody Allen's, you know, worst movies even, you know, like, do you expect that not like, I think that what, what I was trying to get at in what no, I wrote it for doesn't. the website was really this idea <laughs> that, I think there's this kind of expectation on secular people to be respectful of and knowledgeable about religion, but it with but with no sort of corresponding expectation of respect or knowledge coming from observant people about the secular world. Well, again, I would say as jur- as journalists, if we're writing about Judaism, it's weird to say, but I refuse to write about this big chunk of Judaism. There are not a lot of Haredi journalists. If they were claiming to cover American religion for some, for, you know... I don't know, what are some of those, Mishpacha or whatever, some Haredi magazine, and they absolutely refuse to look at any cultural aspects of Judaism in the non-Haredi world, I would say that's weak journalism. And yes, it would surprise me a little bit that, they are, that they've chosen journalism as a path, but are so uninterested in huge slices of American Jewish mm-hmm. life. Yeah. So I guess what I'm saying is when people tell me that, I kind of want to say, I think you're protesting too much. It's not possible mm-hmm. that you love Allen Ginsberg and you read his poem Kaddish, but don't have any curiosity what the Kaddish is. Like right. you're everyone who would say that would be too smart to really mean it. I think. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I happen to think that it's the, I, like I happen to think it's the ultra Orthodox <laughs> um, that are, that do outreach that often ruin it for a lot of, for a lot of this discussion and this dialogue, because it is so often presented as this all or nothing, right? That the religion is X and, um, and that it is the savior of all Judaism and that this is where everything comes from. All of religious life, all of Jewish culture, right? All of it right. emerges from Kaddish, from this practice, from that practice, from the weddings, the hora, all of these things. You, and if you don't know it from a religious perspective, from an Orthodox religious perspective, then you are missing out on life. And honestly, it's a it's a marketing problem of liberal Judaism, liberal observant Judaism, that they don't seem to show that there is a multiplicity of ways in which one can be Jewish. Yes. Um, and one doesn't have to go all in on one way. But Avi... Agreed, but it's the but it's the job of curious people to not say that group has a marketing problem and therefore I dismiss it. Oh, like the move sure. where like as the a, from move a journalistic perspective, some, you're right, but as a Jewish perspective, right. but also just from a human perspective, like sure, but the move of some secular of a lot of secular people to say like, well, I was at this funeral once where the rabbi just didn't even know the person and like gave and made an inappropriate joke and it was so offensive and I'm never setting foot in a synagogue again. Is that a grown no, up response no. to anything? It's just- is that a mature that, response that to... I keep going to coffee shops where I've had a bad experience. So right. I'm not, like, but, but what I was going to say, though, so this this Michael Steinhardt book was, um, yeah, I don't want to scoop myself too much here, but what I, I started to be persuaded on the sort of... I, I'm now actually ultra-Orthodox because I read it, but what I was going to say is... <laughs> is your house stuffed with antiquities, too? Illegal? Oh, so, oh, don't worry. The piece will... Don't worry. Don't worry. That comes up. Um, but yeah, all they're all from Ikea. Um, but... <laughs> What the um, at one point he's sort of saying that like he's promoting he's very adamant that what he's promoting is secular and not religious. But it's like do Shabbat secularly do, you know, do this secularly go to a synagogue, but call it a cineplex or something. And it all just seems like this bizarre thing. Like, no, what this is Jewish religion, like either like it, it just seems like the thing he's trying. You can't there's only so much secular Jewishness you can do in a week. Like it doesn't. 
Um, so this is, by the way, where I'm with you, it Phoebe. Didn't entirely... I, I do side with you, Phoebe, that at some point, secular Jews have to accept that so much of the culture does have its origins in a religious practice. And if you're not even aware of where that comes from, or you're like willfully right. blind to it, then you're a bad secular Jew. Then you're basically want you, you're like, I don't believe in God, but I love this practice. And I love that practice. And I love that practice. And, and that's what Michael Steinhardt is essentially arguing. And I'm like, that is to use your sort of approach, Mark, a silly argument, right? At some point we have to accept that so much of the past 3000 years of Judaism is religious. It's observant. It comes from some sort of a faith-based something. I also want to say that I don't just see this on what you might call the left. I think Jessica Gross is in some sort of left space on religiosity, on politics. There are a lot of people for whom ultra Zionism or attachment to Israel the anti-Semitism is the substitutes for a lot of right wing like Jews. or or right or focus on anti-Semitism on campuses substitutes in for, you know, what they want, which is the feeling of Shabbat in their grandparents house that was that was grounded in an immigrant religiosity that was kind of more authentic and deeply felt or so they perceive. Right. And so I often will say to people when I'm speaking to a crowd that's like feels to me really right wing and they wish I were talking more about anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism and blah, blah, blah. And I'll say, like, I'm interested in those things. But I also want to know, like, when a new family moves to the community, how many of you have them over on a Friday night, even mm-hmm. once, or have them over at all, or bring them a challah, or just call them, mm-hmm. and, like, put, put your hands up. And there's inevitably this, like, collective shame falls over the room. Like, okay, so I actually am not interested in your topic until you give me some space on mine, which is, like, that the Judaism will not survive or be interesting or be meaningful to anyone if we're not loving each other, if all we're doing is facing outward and, like, building barricades against the anti-Semites and the anti-Zionists, right? And but you see you see those defense because they'd rather like go to an APAC conference because it's easy. Like for sure. host some yeah. kids who are in town for a teen Jewish thing. Like it's it's bizarre. I, I, it's bizarre. I tend to ask those people mm-hmm. who are fighting anti-Semitism all the time to explain Semitism for me. Right. And I'm just like, what is, what are you actually like working for? What are the values? And that that's a problem The I, I've said this on the show before where like, I think one of the greatest successes of the civil rights movement and the uh, fight for, um, for Black Lives Matter and all of this stuff is that it's not just we exist and we're alive. It's, you know, here's all this culture that we have, right? When you see Black History Month stuff, it's not just we're fighting anti-Semitism or for, for Jewish History Month or Jewish heritage or whatever it is. It's, there is an entire Higher rich culture and life that people are being presented, right, um, about this, and the and the fighting of anti-Semitism is just the fighting of anti-Semitism. And how cool is Startup Nation? What I would say about fighting anti-Semitism is that it's the broadest tent, right? You can be a victim of anti-Semitism if you are mistaken for a Jew. You can be a victim mm. of anti-Semitism if you have a Jewish sounding last name, whatever, you know, and it's it's one way, I think, of being hyper-inclusive because mm-hmm. it's something that anybody, you know, like you look at anybody who's studied the Holocaust is going to know, you know, about all the like genuinely, like they were Christian, but they were considered racially Jewish by the Nazis, ergo, you know. So I think that's maybe one function of this sort of focus, the hyper-focus on fighting anti-Semitism, which is different from the Zionism piece, right? This, I mean, it's related in the idea of Israel as an escape, but depends how Israel is defining Jews at any, you know, point in the future. But yeah, I think fighting anti-Semitism is a way of kind of bringing the most people on board, but then it, it doesn't have any kind of next step, like, okay, the right to live, yes. I think all people should have a right to live and <laughs> right. beyond that, hate. you know, like, yeah, exactly. Um, but it doesn't, 
it's not a very positive thing to rally around that. But then I think the fact of the matter is defending Jews or anybody who gets defined as a Jew from anti-Semitism is important, but it's not really like the same thing as a sort of, it, it's going to be about more people perhaps than Jewish observance. Of any I mean, sort. I'm really curious to, since I have a, a self-identified, you know, cultural Jew in the room, in the virtual room, I'm curious, Phoebe, sincerely curious, like what to you constitutes secular Judaism? What I is think it? it's sure. I think it's, that's the thing I am. And I think it's not very different from like when Dan Savage was talking at his podcast about being culturally Catholic. I think it's, it's the cultural heritage I have. I'm not anything else. What else would I be? I'm from New York. I went to Hebrew school, which is religious. Sure. Um, I have Jewish parents. My history, fa- my family history um, involves shtetls. You know what I mean? Like that is the only thing I am. I, I wouldn't be anything else. Like that's just the so background I, guess- I have. I, I totally get that. It, and so it strikes me, and I think that's a really like good and honest description. Like that makes tremendous sense to me. It does strike me that it's entirely descriptive. It's not prescriptive. It's not something that you think your children ought to be, let's say, to pick no, on you No, so I children. do have thoughts about this. Um, I have two children. And um, I think that children, assuming they are indeed raised by both their parents, um, are culturally... I mean, I think there are things you can do to encourage along the way, but I think they are the product of both of their parents' cultures. So I think that my children are Ashkenazi New York Jews and uh, Flemish Catholics or secular Catholics, as it were, um, in their own way, you know? And I think that that's, that's just who they are because they're being raised by two parents who each have a cultural heritage. And I, I don't really like the thing um, that you often get in discussions about intermarriage where it's like that the idea that you could somehow erase fully the cultural background of the non-Jewish parent is if like, okay, well, we're going to go one path. The non-Jewish parent right. basically doesn't have a culture. They, they don't exist. Um, which, by but, the way, is one of my yeah, hugest critiques yeah, of liberal interfaith relationships, which um, go and say, well, of course, yes, we, as long as the family is willing to raise the, 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 the children Jewish, right, then you're welcome. You don't even have to convert to come to the Reformed Temple or even to some conservative congregations now or whatever it might be, right? You're basically saying that culture and that religion is, is gone. It's verboten in this family, and, and you're denying a, fa- uh, a person their entire, like, cultural background. Um, and I think that that's horrible. I, 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 I recoil at that because if people said that about Judaism, uh, we would call that the worst form of anti-Semitism, and yet we call we ask for people to do that all the time. So I think you know I think that's really interesting. I mean, I think it's you know I would note, and again, this isn't you've surely noted this as well, right? That one of the things that does is it means that se- that the se- that a secular Jewish identity of someone in say you know fifty years apart from someone else, every fifty years or seventy years, it kind of turns over entirely, right? If it's grounded in the art you didn't you didn't say like Philip Roth and Cynthia Ozick and Bagels, but a lot of people. But do. I could have. Sort of, I could right, have. But you could have. And done. so what that means is that like that a Judaism that's grounded in you know Seinfeld and Bagels and whatever and the smells of the streets in the Upper West Side in the eighties or nineties has literally almost nothing in common with the Judaism of nineteen ten or nineteen twenty, which may be okay. That's not that's not normatively bad, but to me. And, and I'm just naming the difference here. Like the meaning inheres in the fact that we're saying, like when I say the Kaddish be when someone dies, I'm not a particularly theistic person. I don't think I'm nudging their soul into the world to come. But like what makes me tear up 
is that it's the same words that people have been saying since about the year 900. Mm-hmm. And so this sense of being part of, as I call it, an intergenerational book club, we read the same book every year for thousands of years and presumably forever. That's sort of, the, it's this ancestor worship. It's this meaning and connectivity over time. So I do know people who like are, like you, sincerely grounded in what in this sort of thick, authentic, secular Judaism. I think to me, a cost for that, and by the way, that was the Jew I was till about the age of 20. A cost for that is like, then grandma has nothing in common with grandchild because the culture is turned over. I think that's true. Um, And that's where this sort of Michael Steinhardt vision of having this sort of perennial secular Jews is not something that I um, found very persuasive. I don't think it is um, preservable in that way. I think you do need something. But the question is, do you need to yourself personally be an observant, you know, every day of the year Jew to preserve that. Yeah, I mean, I I think a lot of people find, to be perfectly candid, when I read a lot of pieces like the one we're talking about, what I want to th- say is, if I'm being candid, it's stri- it, you don't strike me as someone who's going to go to Minion four times a week. That doesn't seem to be where you want to be. Mm-hmm. But you seem to me someone who might enjoy Passover, Shavuos, and building a sukkah. Mm-hmm. And the fact that you never even tried those things strikes me as coming from a place of discomfort or anger that's not healthy that you actually would do well to resolve in the in the way we would all do well to resolve mm-hmm. certain misgivings we have. But a lot of people turn away from religion because of things like not allowed, letting you pick your own partner, whether their gender, whether their religion, indeed, you know. I think that people turn away from religion for legitimate... I don't believe as many people have had negative off-putting experiences. I don't believe that's what's going on with as many people who... It's like the Catholics who say, like, it's because of the nuns wrapping my knuckles with rulers in, in, you did, in So Catholic you're saying school. that I would be, uh, that I would not, that I was not actually put off by the birthright Israel trip I went on that was pretty much 10 days of being told to find a Jewish husband. Perhaps the boy is sitting next to you on this bus who you do not find at all interesting, but no, maybe I, him. I, Would I, he be great? Hmm? Hmm? I, nudge, I, nudge. I believe you. I believe ah! you're put off by that. I, I believe you're put off by that. It's a miracle that I, would, I emerge still liking no, men No, I would all. actually yeah. argue <laughs> that, that that might be the catalyst, but you're talking about decades of culture yes, that yes. basically said, this is not something that you value. And I'm not here to tell you, for example, Phoebe, you did something wrong by marrying a non-Jewish person, right? You grew up and in this culture, this was fine. I think most people who marry somebody who isn't Jewish is drifting away from their from a tradition or never had that to begin with um, for, for a very, very long time. As you're saying, Mark, the amount of people that are observant and then have this break and say, fuck it, this is, this is over. I'm done, right? I am like, you know, th- that is exceedingly rare, right? I think more people are like yes. you, Phoebe, that are like, you grew up culturally Jewish. Nobody went and told you why um, marrying somebody who isn't Jewish, it might be a bad idea. Uh, oh, are you kidding? The, no, are you kidding? they told you, you, I don't know they about told you, they, they may have, have given you, and the, I don't think that there oh, are bad boy. reasons why. I don't think you want to start I think the only the bad, I think in my mind, no. the only reason why we, why you should marry yeah. somebody Jewish is because they come from the same cultural background as you. And if you, if you don't, and that's yeah. fine, right? That, that that's a well, whole different discussion. Cultural backgrounds. Okay. So yeah, what I would say is that I, I don't, love the term assimilated because it suggests I, that there's this I never kind said of that like once original <laughs> oh no no I, I I just well I'm explaining something sort of taking a step back because I think the term assimilated suggests that there's this like sort of essential Jew at the core of every Jew who like just makes these decisions to be 
this much American, Canadian, whatever, this much Jewish, and, and that they're like personally shedding themselves of this Jewish essential quality and assimilating. I think the fact of the matter is I have more culturally in common with my spouse than I might with somebody who was Jewish because of, yes, things that happened long before I was born, right? In terms of where I fit in the culture. However, I, what I wanted to clarify is I absolutely grew up in the Jewish culture of the, the American Jewish culture of the 90s that, thanks to people like Steinhardt, was hyper-focused on Jewish in marriage and basically defined Jewishness as getting a bunch of singles together. So that brought me back. But, but to, you're just proving um, my point. Nobody Mark, actually spoke to you no, wait, about let, like what tradition and what culture was and why you should marry somebody okay, because but what of I was, that. What I was going to say is what I, what I liked about what Mark wrote and that made me sort of question whether I had been right to sort of call out the sort of, but Jessica Gross's intermarried part is that you weren't making this about who she marries. You weren't making this about this sort of like, get a bunch of singles together and have them mingle approach to Judaism that I feel like I grew up around and mm -hmm. found kind of off-putting and be was, and wasn't really like taking seriously the kind of multi-dimensional aspects of being Jewish and made it just about the baby you would eventually, or babies you would so, eventually produce. I, I, I think, yeah, I, I, I think I have never, I never tell people who, whom they should love and, um, and I don't tell people whom they should befriend or where they should live. Like I don't, I actually am not a, a big advice giver because I think if people want it, they'll ask. In this particular case, I responded to a very public piece of mm -hmm. writing mm -hmm. by a writer I admire whom I've read for a long time. Um, but I don't believe in a Judaism that's focused on, um, on the kind of prescriptiveness about, mm -hmm. you know, marriage and fertility and all those things that you're talking about. And I think it's, it's disrespectful of people and it's not, um, so, but, um, I want to, I want to make one point that hasn't come up yet, which is a lot of that culture around saying, you know, come try it, come to Israel, try dating a Jew, try coming to a Shabbat dinner, try Chabad, whatever is also against the backdrop of enormous amounts of self-loathing self and shame baked into Jews as a minority people in America. Now, maybe you didn't experience this, Phoebe, growing up. It sounds like you grew up in a more Jewish world than I did. You went to Hebrew school. I didn't. You grew up oh, in New no, York Oh, no, I grew up with... Well, go on, go on. But we can, you know, uh... I grew up in an, uh, you know, a heavily Irish Catholic town. Um, my parents were highly secular Jews. They weren't ashamed of being Jewish. We did Jewish... You know, we did Hanukkah and Passover, um, usually Passover at someone else's house, like... Um, you know, I went to the B'nai Mitzvah Cousins in Chicago and Philadelphia. Like I, I, I was, you know, I got it. I knew what it was, but there was no sense of Jewish pride or Jew or, or my own ethnicity as something that it was fortunate to be in the way that I think a lot of, you know, and, and this is in this regard, like the journey of a Jew to saying, I'm fortunate to be Jewish is not different from the journey of a black person or a queer person or whatever to saying, like, I love this aspect of myself, even mm -hmm. though society sometimes devalues it. And so a lot of what this discourse is not necessarily around telling you go do the right thing mm -hmm. for, I'm not, you know, I'm sure you've been on the end of some of those really prescriptive things, but a lot of it is a corrective to, you don't have to hate yourself for this. And you don't have to think that Gentile women are always prettier or that Gentile sure. men are always like taller or better or better at sports or whatever. It's like, there's a lot going on here that I think has to be unpacked. Well, my husband is a professional athlete. He's a physicist, actually. But um, <laughs> yeah. um, but what note. I was going to say, yeah. yes, Avi, Avi, point taken about their, the anti-intermarriage discussions not having had a right. ton of content. It's, it's easy for you to push back against that, that if the only thing you yes. are is a womb. Sure. But, but what I was going to say about um, my own background, um, I grew up on the Upper East Side of Manhattan in a very, I guess, sort of 
I wouldn't say that it was necessarily all that waspy demographically by the time I was growing up, but definitely a lot of like Jewish women are revolting was in the culture. Um, I read Philip Roth. I watched the sitcoms of that era. I remember thinking, so I, I've probably, I hope I have not told the story before on this podcast, but when I, I went to the University of Chicago for undergrad and I remember thinking that when I would get there, all the women, all my classmates were going to look like Claudia Schiffer. I thought they were all going to look like German supermodels because it was the Midwest. And I had no idea. I'd never been to the Midwest. I had no idea what to expect. And I got to the University of Chicago and that did not prove to be the case. And um, I was in more demand than I would have expected when I thought that Claudia Schiffer was uh, every three feet. Um, Yes, I absolutely think that there is a Jewish pride piece. Um, I guess, yeah, I think... I think what ultimately does happen, though, I mean, I'm going to have to concede this. Yeah, of course, like, unless you are either Orthodox or in Israel, continuity is going to be a question, you know, and I I don't, I don't, for other reasons, you know, approve of natalism. I don't think that's an appropriate way to go. So yeah, I think you do at a certain point, just have to shrug your shoulders and say, you know, some things come into the culture, some things leave the culture. And, you know, you can write things down, but you can't force your children to be a very specific cultural hybrid that you are. The, the, the position I always try to come back to when I'm being my best self or my best writer, which is seldom, is that uh, for people who are personally interested in Jewish heritage, but certainly for intellectuals or journalists or people who are trying to explain it, they will always, they should always want to run towards all aspects of it, right? Like the idea that the Haredi community or the modern Orthodox community or the conservative community or the reconstruction community or the renewal community uh, of new age and, and mystical Judaism or whatever, or the Jubu community, the idea that any of these is simplistic or can just be scoffed at. And I've done a lot of that scoffing myself at various of the communities I just named. The idea that's ever like a, an okay or virtuous position to hold is wrong. We should always be like eternally curious about all of it. It. And so I bring, I guess I just want to commend that to people that like, there's no free pass of being a curious, open-minded person just because you say, well, I'm a secular Jew. Therefore, I just don't care about these other Jews. I know what their game is and I just reject it. You probably don't know what their game is and either you don't have to reject it, but like, it, it's also okay to say, I don't know. And so I, 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 you, you responded in a kind of virtual visceral way to certain aspects of what I wrote, what I'd been responding to in a visceral way was the casual dismissal that I think people wouldn't take towards other kinds of cultures that people think it's okay to take towards what they see as observance. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. No, that does make sense. Are you in the market for a new watch or a special piece of jewelry? Are you looking for the perfect engagement ring to pop the question? Atelier Lou has all this and more. Eric and the team at Atelier Lou can craft a piece for you, or you can select from some of the exclusive designers that they offer. From a simple bangle to a statement necklace, Atelier Lou can make you or your loved ones sparkle. Located in the heart of Westmount in Montreal or online at atelierlou.com, visit Atelier Lou for your next watch or jewelry purchase. And when you do, make sure to use promo code BON18 for 10% off your next purchase. That's atelierlou.com. 
you currently uh, are writing the authorized biography, I believe, of Judy Bloom. I never know what authorized means. I'm guessing um, she's cooperating yeah, with it. I believe that's know. that is. Yeah, it. I, I You're don't, not I, Kitty I, Kelly here. I'm not working again at cross purposes with her. She is being cooperative, helping to facilitate interviews with people she knows, and yeah, it's it's a great relationship. I always associated um, Judy Bloom with. It's, it's weird. I read her novels, but I always thought that I was the contrary one as a young Jewish boy reading her books. Um, I assume Phoebe, you probably read her books uh, growing up. Um, of course, of what course. got you interested in this? Um, is am I not so contrary yeah. as a male reading these books that are supposedly transgressive for me, or oh. uh, all of that? And and maybe you can add in um, how Jewishly how are is this a Jewish topic? Are you approaching it in any way right. Jewishly or not? No, I can I can handle that one easily. I, I you know I've never written a biography before, but I've read a lot of them, and it it seems to me the job is always to convey something interesting and insightful about the person and their life. So it'll be Jewish to the extent she's Jewish. And she grew up, you know, Judy Sussman in Elizabeth, New Jersey, and, um, you know, was sent to Hebrew school. And, um, you know, for her first marriage, it was certainly important to her um, to marry a nice Jewish boy, and she did. Um, uh, you know, she's not a particularly religious person, but I certainly Judaism suffuses a lot of her works, and it's a part of her life that she's proud of. So it turns up, but it's not a super Jewy book. It won't be a super Jewy book. Um, I, I was a big fan of hers. And in 1997, I think, um, my first kind of big published piece was a piece that I submitted sight unseen and uncommissioned uh, to the New York Times Book Review about why I loved Judy Bloom, And I'm sure part of their interest in it was like, what's this young male writer? I was 22 or something. So who knew that 22-year-old men wanted to write about Judy Bloom? And she saw it and sent me a nice note and we corresponded very occasionally after that, every five years or something. We'd send each other an email. Um, and then a number of years ago, I began indicating that if she was ever, ever interested in cooperating with a biographer, it would be my honor to, to do that. And about six months ago, a little more now, um, last June or so, I think, she reached out and said, I think, you know, it's time that I work with a biographer and, you know, might it be you? So that's how it happened. That's really cool. I, I really look forward to um <laughs> Tell me about it. It's it. really cool. <laughs> um, so I'm wondering um a bit how you address like the there are, young adult literature has become extremely contentious. Um and where she sort of fits in all of that, um, and how you're approaching that in your work. Well, you know, um I have a lot of reading to do about the history of young adult literature. That's actually going to be a really interesting piece for me. It's a fa- first of all, she would say that she's not primarily a YA writer. She writes mm-hmm. her biggest books are for slightly younger people, people mm-hmm. who are maybe 10, 11. We learned this from an um, author uh, middle grade writing. That's what they call it now. Middle grade. Although she certainly forever is for an older crowd and but she's that's adult novels. But that's contentious too, uh, all of that. I mean, fiction in general, but especially for young fiction for young people. Yeah, I mean, look, in some ways, she precedes all of these debates because she was such a pioneer. Um, there certainly were a tr- tremendous writers for young people before her. Um, you know, Beverly Cleary coming out of the 1950s. You know, um, the people who wrote the Nancy Drew and Encyclopedia Brown books. E.B. White. I mean, there were Gordon C.S. Lewis. There were Titans. Um, really? Never. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> now you're just now you're just legendary. <laughs> you're just. Le- proving- he's probably Canada's <laughs> answer to Judy Bloom, right? In that he wrote. So I will. I will I go do my. Canada had an answer to Judy Bloom. He was Jewish. Wrote from that perspective. Sometimes, not always. Uh, had that. Yeah. Okay. What's amazing about 
Judy Bloom's work is how early she was on so many things. You know, Iggy's house um, is about uh, you know an interracial family moving to the neighborhood or black family moving to the neighborhood. Um, Blubber is about fat shaming. Deanie is about disability. Are you there, God? It's me. Margaret is about menstruation. Um, Deanie has masturbation in it. Um, Forever is very uh, advanced in the way it deals with teen sexuality and and sex. She, she was so far out in front in by decades in so many things. She was not the first writer to to write. Frank books for young people, but she was um, probably the first best-selling major writer to do so. Um, but do you so, think that, that her success had something to do with a different sort of climate where there was a little bit of, a, there there weren't maybe sensitivity readers and quite as much eggshell? Um, I mean, I think it was a more unified culture. And so, um, you know, the fact that I found in her archives a bestseller list from B. Dalton Booksellers, which I'm old enough to remember was like the bookstore that was in a lot of malls. Mm -hmm. There was Walden Books and B. Dalton. And it was like best-selling children's books for the month of February, sometime in the late 1970s. And seven of the 10 were Judy Bloom books. Wow. Um, and, you know, if you looked at the top 20, you know, it was, it also had, you know, Charlotte's Web and The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. I mean, it was like Judy Bloom and then all these all-time greats, and she had seven of the top ten. So it was a more unified culture. I don't know that any of her books would have run afoul of today's sensitivity readers. Well, I did readers. read something that was like, how I, I don't know if it was in the New York Times or somewhere else, that was like a guide to her work. And for each book, it had like a little bit of a disclaimer about, well, this would be problematic by today's standards because this, this, and this, but it's still worth reading or, you know. I mean, I I... One hardly knows what to say, right? I mean, great art, I think, transcends time. I think, you know, interestingly, she has made the point time and again that children can be trusted. Mm -hmm. And I wonder how many of those disclaimers come from well-meaning adults who aren't trusting children enough. Mm -hmm. I find that my own children are much saner on questions around these things than a lot of the adults around them, you know, mm -hmm. that they can, for example, have no problem separating out what they hear about an author from whether the book is terrific. Mm -hmm. um, like kids, kids understand, well, you know, oh, I heard the author was such and such, but the book's great, which, you know, is a mature response to art. So, um, yeah, I think that like, that's something I'll get deeper into as I continue to reread the books. But, you know, I've, I've seen very little I don't have the sense that there's that there are a lot of people who are trying to ban her from the left, to be perfectly blunt. Certainly, she's always in the gun sights of people on the right who want to protect children from some of the frankness in her books. Yes. I mean, that was the other that was the other piece of the question I was going to ask about the sort of like um, how you're approaching that, because that it, it does seem like it's a good lens into all of the sort of right wing yeah. censorship, which I feel like has not been maybe covered as much in the sort of culture wars discussions. But it's still it's still out there, certainly. I mean, it all depends on where you're sitting. I mean, I think that, you know, they come at people from different angles, right? Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. the right wing censors come at school libraries right. and um, school classrooms and they use the, and right now they're using the legislatures more. And this has been going back, the sort of going to the school boards. This is all in Judy's archives. You know, this was happening to mm -hmm. her in the 70s and 80s and she was testifying in trials and she has a huge track record of being a, a really brave person speaking out against censorship. Um, you know, the left comes by trying to sort of stop publication and, and, and pressure editors. And I mean, what you hear from publishing houses now about the eggshells that editors are working on, uh, are walking on is, is troubling. And that's coming from, you know, um, parents, teachers, librarians, uh, writers, and so forth. Well, this is great. I mean, because I'm just thinking that your, your book is going to be obviously of interest to people interested in Judy Bloom and in young adult and young people more broadly uh, writing, but also like it's a free speech and publishing topic. Absolutely. Which is Although, exciting. Uh, 
No, I mean, I look, I want it to be timeless. I'm not going to write the book that's saying, like, here's why Judy Bloom matters in 2025. Sure. Uh, you know, I want it to be really the story mm-hmm. of her life through at the mm-hmm. time, you know, she's 85 years old now, so it'll come out when she's 87 or 88. Mm-hmm. I want it to be about her because I think she's a serious woman of letters. And one of the really cool things about being in her archives is you see the correspondence with Joan Didion and with Rita Mae Brown and with, in one case, Kurt Vonnegut and as well as Dr. Seuss. <laughs> um, as just, just you know, she was good friends with novelists like Robert Stone and Alison Lurie who lived in Key West with her. I mean, she's a serious 20th century woman of letters. And that's that's ultimately what we have to remember about her, I think. Mm-hmm. Amazing. Um, will you stick around and give us a Nachas of the Week? Sure. <laughs> UJA's Walk with Israel is happening this Victoria Day, Monday, May 22nd. Join thousands of community members for the world's largest Israel Solidarity Walk, followed by an epic Israeli-themed beach party to celebrate Israel's 75th birthday. Get all the details by visiting walkwithisrael.com. This is our moment to unite as one strong and proud Jewish community, religious and secular, left and right, Jews and allies. Everyone belongs at the Walk with Israel. Register before May 19th, and if you use the promo code CJN, you can save 10% on all Walk Bundle packages. To register, visit walkwithisrael.com. Okay, Phoebe, what's your nachas? Ah, okay. So I have not actually seen it. Maybe it's terrible. I don't have Netflix. But Rough Diamonds apparently is a TV show on Netflix that has that's in Yiddish and Flemish. And given that those are the two... Oh my God. Um, ancestral, it was made for you. It was like made for me. So I'm going to need to um, watch it in some capacity. I have not watched it though. So um, as a nachas, it's uh, it's just a nach. It's not, it doesn't go full nachas. Um, it's... <laughs> out there. It sounds interesting. Sounds Jewish. I'm interested. What about you guys? Sure. Um, I love it when, when, um, friends of mine, um, get, get kudos from the world. I love it when the, when the good guys win. I have two friends who have come out with books that are totally different, but both genuinely wonderful. I am actually, I'm not just saying this, they're genuinely really wonderful. Um, my friend Reagan Penaluna, who is a philosopher, um, is wrote a book called How to Think Like a Woman, which has been getting reviewed everywhere. Um, and it's about her journey as a woman philosopher, facing misogyny in the academy, facing the kind of erasure of female voices from the history of philosophy. And it's about four underappreciated female philosophers whom she took solace in. Um, again, it's called How to Think Like a Woman. It's so good. And um, and everyone should go buy it, even if you're not interested in philosophy. And then my friend Jonathan Rosen, his long-awaited book about a friend of his who suffers from schizophrenia and committed a very terrible crime when he was not in his right mind. Um, his, it's called The Best Minds. And it's really, it's about deinstitutionalization, how we treat mental health, how we treat, it's about so much. It's also about childhood friendship. So The Best Minds. And But anyway, he's a, Jonathan's, a, these are both nice people who've written great books. And that's just such a nice thing to see. Those both sound fantastic. I'm frustrated because I already have a huge like new books that I just know. came out stack of things <laughs> I need to read. We all but do. Now, now those are added. Those are added. Okay, both. Yeah. So I'm in uh, Connecticut over the weekend in your home state. And uh, I was in Stanford for this bat mitzvah. I go to Trader Joe's, uh, of course, because my kids are bugging me to go to Trader Joe's. Is the home of cult favorite kosher foods, right? Scandinavian swimmers, those fake Takis that they make, chocolate babka stout, which if you haven't had, is amazing. Um, wow. And I see this display of pasta that rocked my world, cascatelli pasta. It's 
It's this new shape of pasta, which I don't know if you've listened to the Sporkful, Dan Pashman. Um, he invented a new shape of pasta, and it's now being sold by Trader Joe's with a Heckscher. Um, and... I was like, I had to buy. So I stocked up. I then go find myself a price chopper. Uh, and Carbone, which is apparently the hottest of hottest restaurants in New York City now, um, has a kosher branded marinara sauce. I'm proud to have presented this to my family over the week. We served it uh, two nights ago and it was a massive hit. Uh, so not so much the nachas to Carbone because like whatever, you do your thing. But um, I'm really glad and thank you to Dan Pashman for inventing new pasta and thank you to Trader Joe's for actually licensing it and selling it and um, bring it out in a kosher way. It's a frustrating one for Canadian audiences. I know, though. I know. Well, you know what? Every Canadian has their, I like... I just Googled, as you were saying this, I Googled <laughs> Cascatelli Canada and did not find anything too promising. Every kosher of observing Jew that I know that lives in Canada has a Trader Joe's mule and, like, a whole oh, ritual okay. of, like, what they need <laughs> on a regular basis from Trader Joe's. This is, like, a regular part of life in Canada as a Jew. Um, oh anyways, thank you, Mark. This was amazing. Thank you so much. I'm so glad you came on. This was really Thank fun. you. Anytime. Thank you for listening to Moshe Chai for the week ending May 6th, Shabbat Parashat Emor. The show is produced and edited by Zach Kaufman. The executive producer for CJN Podcasts is Michael Freeman. Our music is by SoCalled. We are a project of the Jewish Living Lab and are distributed by the CJN Podcast Network. You can listen to all our past episodes on our page at thecjn.ca slash bonjour, and you can subscribe to the podcast and automatically receive all episodes on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. We would love it if you told a friend about Moshe Chai. It is one of the best ways that we get new listeners. And as always, you can email us with comments at bonjour at the cjn.ca. I'm Avi Feingold. And I'm Phoebe Maltzbovi.